Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. For this weekend, we're going to talk Bombers with Ed Tate. You're going to hear from one of the newest members of the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. She's 100 years old. Her story on the podcast as well. We talked to Leah Hextall. Is the Stanley Cup Finals over? The Blues going to finish it off? You'll find out all that on the podcast. Blue Bombers made some cuts today, and we're going to talk about that and everything to do with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers now with Ed Tate of BlueBombers.com. How you doing, Ed? Fantastic, Christian. How are you, man? Good. Did you enjoy yourself in Regina last night? Well, it was. you know what? For a preseason game, it was a lot of fun. That's something that Bob Irving and I were talking about while we were doing the game is that there, you know, there's some big plays, uh, six touchdown passes, I think, or five touchdown passes by six different quarterbacks. Teams moved up and down the field. You know, there was the usual mistakes and kind of, you know, the preseason stuff that you would expect, but uh, it was actually a very, very watchable for a preseason game, and you can't say that too often. Well, it, from what I gathered, they were feeling free to just air it out and see what happens, which you kind of like to see in preseason. Yeah, I think uh, for the in the Bombers' case, I mean, if you want to find out whether some of these guys can play in, in the receiving core, and we've been gushing about them for so long, then, you, you know, you want to air it out and see what they can do, and in the case of Lucky Whitehead and, and Kenny Walker, they certainly uh, showed that both with 86-yard touchdowns. And uh, the Lucky Whitehead one in particular was uh, what he did in the open field was pretty amazing. Kenny Walker's was more of a straight line and a great throw by Brian Bennett. But uh, pretty a couple of uh, really encouraging plays and developments for this team that's looking for some more speed in its receiving court. So the six players released today, Elijah Battle, Delroy Baker, Israel Helms, Malik Boynton, Tim Wilson, and Jacob Furlot. Boynton, probably the one name that jumps off that page just because of the, his story and it, it being told before he got to camp about all the hardships he's gone through to get to where he is today. Any of them have a chance to be on the practice squad or are they going to be looking for work elsewhere? Well, I suppose it, there is a chance, an outside chance, Christian. There's just so many more. Uh, guys that they have to make a decision on that uh, this first wave, uh, I suppose there's an outside chance they could still be on the practice roster if the other guys that get cut decline the opportunity. So um, it's always a work in progress here. So I I don't want to say these guys are already on their way out of town because um, if the people supposedly ahead of them on the depth chart all say no to the opportunity to be on the PR, then maybe they, they get a second chance. So the deadline is 9 p.m. For those who aren't entirely clear on this process, what's the number they have to get down to? And then also the practice squad and injured list. Yeah, so uh, bear with me here because I had tweeted, uh, written just earlier today that the practice roster was 10, but under the new collective bargaining agreement, it's actually 12. So there's 12 guys that can go on the the practice roster there's the roster now is 45 players that includes 21 canadians 22 no, 20 americans three quarterbacks and, and now a global player um and then the injured list doesn't have to be declared until just before the game so the bombers wouldn't have to do that until thursday or friday of this uh, coming week so that's what's going to be interesting in, in the wake of the cuts that come tomorrow is when the team takes the field again is whether someone like Pat Newfeld or Chris Matthews or Winston Rose is practicing because if they're not practicing, then that means that some of the guys that uh, were on the bubble might get more of an opportunity because those other guys, as proven players, would likely get moved to the injured list. So how many players right now are on the roster? 
You're going to ask me a math question? I don't know. Uh, it's <laughs> a quiz. lot still. Let's put it this way. It's a lot. If you want to do the head count, go to our website and count them all okay. up. I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> I'm mathematically challenged, Christian. I think you know that, so don't put me on the spot like that, man. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's in the it's – okay. they, they've, they've got a couple dozen still to cut down, fair to say. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> okay. A lot of guys that still have to – they have to make a decision on You're right. Okay, so we talked about the receivers – how much room is there for extra receivers here that beyond the ones that we already knew were going to make the team based on the last season, the last couple of seasons? Yeah, that's a good question because again, because partly because of Chris Matthews status, Nick Dembski hasn't practiced in a while too. So that's a, you know, another sort of question mark until we see early in the week when they practice, we had always just uh, suggested that there was one open starting job in the receiving core with Wallatarski, Dembski, Darvin Adams and Matthews, that there would be a, a new import, probably an import receiver. Um, and, but now with Matthews' status in question, uh, you know, another guy might buy himself a, a week. And then, of course, the other factor in all this, Christian, is what they do at the kick return spot. So I, that's what made last night's game interesting. I had just sort of assumed that Lucky Whitehead or Charles Nelson would be the, the main returner, and it looked like Whitehead was winning that job with Nelson being hurt. But what Whitehead did as a receiver last night, I think really forces him into the conversation as to a potential starter and returner. So then does that mean that your the return job is then again open for a designated import spot? So that's why there's just so many balls up in the air right now. And, and then these the, the coaches tonight are, are probably going through every possible scenario as to how to massage their roster to take, you know, take advantage of all this talent that's been in camp. So, I think there's one to kind of sum up here. I think there's one receiver spot available, but it could be that uh, that the receiver spot and then the returner is another receiver. So uh, just to give you more depth in the receiving core. I just took a quick zoom through your website, and it looks like 80 is the number of players on the roster right now. So there's a lot of cutting wow. to do over the next 26 hours. Thank you for that. I didn't have to count it up. You did it for me. Beautiful. Glad to lend a hand. Uh, now you mentioned global players. Yep. There's four in camp for the Bombers. One of them is going to be here for the long run. Yeah, and I would, uh, you know, there's not a lot of sure things on this roster. Theodric Hansen, the German linebacker, he looks the part. Uh, he's a, you know, he's a sponge. He wants to learn so much. Um, he's, you know, 6'2", 240. He's going to, the, whoever they, they peg for their global player is going to be primarily a special teams player. It's not going to be the kicker as good as Gabriel Ortiz was last night because he's not going to beat out Justin Medlock. Um, the linebacker, Manuel Hernandez-Reyes, is hurt, so it won't be him. And then there's uh, a defensive back, and I'm just calling him up here. Sorry, I forget his name. Oh, yeah, Sergio Perez, who played in the Arena League. That's not bad, too. So, But I would bet that it's going to be Theodric Hansen, the German linebacker, that would get that spot. But then again... With that spot guaranteed on your roster, you better have some some help there. So maybe that helps Sergio Perez to, to be, uh, you know, a guy that might be on the practice roster uh, in case Cedric Hansen gets hurt. Finally, the quarterbacks. Obviously, we know Matt Nichols is one. Chris Strebler is two. Safe to say, Brian Bennett's going to be number three. I don't know, uh, Christian. It's a you know, Sean McGuire is impressive, and uh, he throws he throws a good ball. He was on the field when to engineer the sort of the game-winning drive last night. He scored on a on a one-yard sneak that 
you know, there's an assumption that Brian Bennett does so many things. He's a holder. He, you know, covers kicks. And he's had a really good camp as a passer. But there's something intriguing about McGuire, too. And as a newcomer and a guy that's younger, Bennett's 27 and McGuire's 23. You know, if you're starting to think down the road a little bit, maybe you're tempted to keep McGuire. I, I, I think a lot of people are on the same page as you thinking that this is Bennett's job. Um, but McGuire is intriguing, and I, you know, I wonder if they wouldn't be tempted to somehow keep four quarterbacks around because of the upside of McGuire. Interesting. All right, Ed, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks again, and uh, have a great weekend. Appreciate the math help, too. <laughs> always here to lend a hand. Ed Tate, Director of Content for BlueBombers.com. To celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame and Museum, 28 individuals and 15 teams were inducted in a special 40th anniversary celebration last night. Now, all but two of them were inducted posthumously. The exceptions, Harry Nightingale, born in 1936, already a member of the Canadian Lacrosse Hall of Fame, and the other, 100-year-old Mary Dobson. Yes, you heard that right, a centenarian born in Scotland but grew up right here in Winnipeg where she started running when she was how old? Oh, <laughs> when I was a very young, <laughs> right, probably about 12 years old. And now I'm uh, much older than that. I saw other people running, and I wanted to do the same. At the age of 13, actually, you know what? Why don't I let her tell the story? I was 13 years old and attended Lord Roberts School in Winnipeg. I became interested in running, and Dan McWilliams, the vice principal, uh, became my coach. 75 and 100 yard dash became my best event along with the running broad jump. Under Dan McWilliams' guidance, I won those events at the school's track and field meets, the Winnipeg school meets, and then at the provincial meets in 1933 and 34. When I enrolled as a student at Kelvin High School in Winnipeg, um, the only high school in South Winnipeg did not have enough money for bus fare. Several of us walked three or four miles from the CNR railway tracks to, to from school every day, even in the brutal cold of Winnipeg winters. This made for excellent conditioning on my part. Like I've always said, the best way to get through a Winnipeg winter is to make the most of it and embrace it. Sorry, Mary, you were saying? I was a founding member of the Women's Track Club sponsored by the CGIT with Coach Dan and several others, local teenage girls. We soon became a force in the royal track and field scene. Our Manitoba contingent of seven women's athletes completed in the 1935 Canadian Nationals in Montreal. In the summer of 1936, we returned to Montreal to compete in the Olympic trials. Our expenses were covered by the Women's Athletic Federation of Canada. We were allotted a budget of 25 cents for breakfast, 50 cents for lunch, and 75 cents for dinner. The train ride was over 44 hours. And you think driving home on Route 90 takes a while. But despite her team's great success at the trials, actually getting to the Olympics, that was another story. I achieved a second 
placed finish with the 100-yard dash and won gold in the intermediate running broad jump with the new Manitoba record of 15 feet 8 and a half inches. Although I had qualified to represent Canada in the 1936 Olympics, there was insufficient recognition or funding for women athletes as compared to men. She would have had to pay her own way to go to Berlin. Smack dab in the Great Depression, she couldn't afford it, so she decided to keep blazing the trail at home. In 1937, she was part of a Manitoba ladies team, her words, that competed to represent Canada at the British Commonwealth Games in Australia the following year. I managed to qualify for these games, yet because became ill with a strep throat and was unable to travel. This was the biggest disappointment in my entire life. <laughs> After her competitive career was done and she started to raise a family, she still stayed connected to the women's athletic community. 1958 Manitoba Sports Advisory Council, 1967, Housing Committee for the British Empire Games. 1974, Manitoba representative to the National Conference of Women in Sport. Oh, when you thought she was done racing, think again. At the age of 94, I think it is, um, completed with the 100-meter dash at the BC Seniors Games following hip surgery. So what's your excuse? Over years, I had admired the dedication of the Canadian women athletes, and they overcame their challenges while achieving their personal goals. I am proud to have been part of this female athletic empowerment movement and enjoy sharing this them on the uh, annual Harry Jerome Track Classic meeting in Vancouver. I especially thank the committee and my family from Vancouver, California, Nudvik, and Winnipeg for being here to celebrate after 83 years my induction into the Manitoba Sport Hall of Fame. Yes, Mary's family came from all over to be here for her. Mary, by the way, calls BC home now. Grandson David Dobson came all the way from... Actually, can you say it? I live in Kugluktuk, Nunavut. Thanks. And David, like the rest of the family here, wouldn't have missed this for the world. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, we're very proud of her. All of her accomplishments. It's a remarkable life, but the trailblazing, it's not really something that was really broadcast around the family house when Mary's son Richard was growing up. Oh, I would have I would have been an adult, so it would be, I guess, in my 20s because, you know, she, she was mom, right? She was just mom. <laughs> and she was working, and she was... Um, Married, divorced, and uh, and uh, my brother and I left left the nest, and my father left the nest, and and she was on her own and working as uh, she learned how to um, drive a car. She became a real estate agent. Um, she's always been, as you can see, very determined, very strong-willed. You know, you ask her to do something, she says no, and then she says, "Well, what do I want?" And then she changes her mind. So. Um, so I, I guess it was in, as, as an adult that I really just began to learn and, and now tr as we past month or two just really appreciate what she's really accomplished, which is remarkable. Richard is 73 years old, his older brother Ken, 78, and Richard says the whole family is very grateful that the Hall of Fame is honoring his mother, offering the chance for her story to be shared. She's a, a pioneering woman. There weren't many women involved in sports and one of seven women 
from Western Canada going to Montreal for the Canadian Nationals in 1935 and 1936. Quite an achievement for a young woman who had, didn't have much money and not much backing, and so just, uh, you know, so it was challenging, very challenging. And so to see a, a young woman with that, with that challenge in the 30s is now being inducted to the Sports Hall of Fame. And, and last night, as I was helping her up, the, up to the stage, I looked back, the whole place was standing ovation, recognizing her as being over 100, mobile, articulate, and dancing off the stage as she left. So it was really quite fun. And we're all there in the front row, quite excited. We're all very excited to be here. And even now, at the age of 100, Richard says his mom, Still motoring around pretty good. She's on her own and she walks to, uh, she lives in Carousel, part of Vancouver, and she walks to the senior center one block and has lunch and and uh, then bring visits with the ladies and then she brings a little care package home for dinner and um, you know, she wants to fruits or vegetables, she goes to the corner market or takes the bus down to, down to the... 10 blocks and picks up her groceries, which is very independent. Now, one thing we can't forget is just how different the athletic world was for women in the 30s. She didn't have much family support. It was her father and two and a sister and uh, not much money. War one just ended. Depression is coming. So uh, it was very extremely challenging. And uh, she always felt that when her father, when she asked her, talked about her accomplishments with her father, he would say, don't be proudful boasting. It's not, it's not a good thing to be proud, proud and boasting. So she didn't get much support. However, when she was competing in the Manitoba Provincials, and halfway down the track, she'd hear, come on, Mary! <laughs> A big loud voice from the stands. That was Pop. We called him. That was Pop. And then uh, she looked around. He wasn't there. And when she got home, he didn't say anything about it. So she really did. She was just really had to come from within. Really had to come from within her. And it is. It's still there. That spunk and drive is still there. That determination. Heck, it's 2019. We still don't have one true pro hockey league for women in North America. Things still aren't perfect. And that isn't lost on Mary. I don't think they get enough uh, appearance from the from the writers and other people. The men get it all. <laughs> we get a little tiny bit. <laughs> and this is a problem you were dealing with back in the day, and it's still here today. You're right. Indeed. Mary had the chance to view the Hall of Fame today with her family in tow guided by Rick Brownlee, executive director of the hall, and she had a great time. Oh, I think it's wonderful. It's very well done. Yeah, very well, very well put together. Must have taken a lot of thought and, and work to put it together. Finally, I had to ask her about that time she laced them up just a few years ago. I enjoyed it. I could do it right now. Could you? <laughs> could. <laughs> So, Leah, we'll get to kind of the action on the ice, but the dominating conversation today is that of the officiating, which has been a little bit up and down this postseason. The controversial no call on a trip last night. There was a, a check to the head that wasn't called. Does the NF NHL have an officiating problem? I think the narrative around the NHL is that it's had an officiating problem for multiple years, but it almost seems to me that 
like any successful organization, the tone is set from the top. So everyone has to remind themselves that the officials are given a mandate by the league and by players' safety and what they're looking for, what they're calling, what they're not perhaps calling within a Stanley Cup final. And I think that does play into the conversation here. And we spoke about this before, Christian, about the difference between officiating in the regular season and officiating in the playoffs and why something like last night, which was pretty much a blatant slew foot by Tyler Bozak on Noel Achari, which then led to a goal occurring mint like seconds after, actually, and it stood as a game-winning goal, doesn't get called. That play should have been whistled down. That goal should have never happened. But it did. So why was that not called? And that's the conversation that we're not getting the answers to. And you're not going to get the answers to from the NHL whether or not the officials have been said, listen, it's the Stanley Cup final. You only call headshots. You only call, you know, the big-time penalties. But I have an issue with that because I believe officiating needs to be consistent from the regular season all the way into the playoffs. It hasn't been for a very long time. And I think this offseason – you are going to see more than anything owners really come at the league about officiating. It's not going to be the players. It will be the owners because I can tell you right now in Vegas, they're sitting there thinking, how much money did we lose due to poor officiating? And you mentioned head checks. There was a, a hit to the head, Ivan Barbashev to Marcus Johansson. That's a hearing today for a hit that was not a penalty play on the ice and it happened about five feet from an official and you have to wonder did he just get blocked by that but there are questions and there are obviously a lot of people thinking Boston is getting their comeuppance for whatever reason but this is something where Boston they have to overcome it and they they are getting real banged up in this series they are, and this is what St. Louis does. They've done it to every opponent that they've had. They exert their will. They grind another team down. It doesn't matter if you have more talent than them because you almost don't want to touch the puck. Their injuries are sta- starting to mount up, as we've seen even players that they're putting out there, like Zidane Ochara. Everyone knows he can't play at his full strength when you have a broken jaw. But this is what the Blues do, and this is what has made them successful. But on top of that, you know, you can't just look at the Blues and say this is why they're successful because they're a big physical team. I mean, I really believe that they've made some strong adjustments. You look at the fact that the Boston Bruins power play has been so strong throughout all the playoffs and was very strong at the start of this series, but St. Louis has killed off five straight now, and they've adapted to what the Bruins are doing. So that goes to the group over there on the Blues bench, but also to their coaching staff. And this Blues team is a great hockey club. I mean, you saw a goaltender go in there in Jordan Bennington who stole, literally stole that game last night. Ryan O'Reilly, three goals in the last two games, including a game winner. Their big players are stepping up. Their role players are doing their job. Alex Petrangelo has had sensational play throughout. It's almost when you think of the Blues and if they go on to win the Cup perhaps next game or in seven, the question has to be started, who's the comps might? on the Blues team. I mean, if they go on to win this, you know, you think maybe Bainton because goaltending is so important, but there's so many options to choose from because they really are getting such a strong effort up and down their lineup. So let's talk about Biddington because last night he set, or I guess tied the rookie record for wins in a postseason by goalie with 15, which is interesting that 16 has never been hit, though I understand the series in the first round used to be best of fives, which accounts for most of those stats. But he makes almost 40 saves last night. He has been the backbone of this Blues surge since January, and I would have to think he's going to get 
the Con Smythe, but is he really the one X factor for them if they're going to seal this Sunday night? I think he has to be. I mean, I think on the other side, too, Tuka Rask is the deciding factor in game six. He can't afford to let in even a single goal because of how stingy the Blues are when it comes to elimination games. They've been very strong. Their record is very good. They usually don't allow more than two goals in an elimination game setting. But you look at the fact that Jordan Bingington got pulled in game three, and since then, he stopped 59 of 62 shots. I mean, you it's absolutely phenomenal what he's been doing within these playoffs. Last night, he completely stole it. Boston outshot them 17 to 8 in the first, doubled their shots in the third, 14 to 7. And he just stood in there, and nothing seems to rattle him. And as you mentioned, no other rookie has won all 16 games to win the Stanley Cup. That includes Ken Dryden. That includes Patrick Waugh, and that includes Matt Murray most recently. Jordan Bington has a chance to go down in history, and this is a goaltender that even the team he is playing for right now wanted to banish him to the ECHL this year. It is truly perhaps one of the greatest stories that we've had in nearly the last decade when it comes to a personal player story. And for the hockey team as a franchise, we went through this last year with Washington, a team that had never won the Cup before, they had this really tortured playoff history, and now we have St. Louis the following year, another team that hasn't won it. They've had a lot of good seasons without getting to a cup final. We're living in a time when we're getting these amazing stories after having the same teams over and over for about a decade, yet it doesn't feel like a classic Stanley Cup final. It really doesn't, does it? I mean, it just doesn't have... That, that je ne sais quoi, as they say, right? That kind of, um, you know, just that marquee names in it, people that are the, your huge stars. I mean, if you think about it, we had Pittsburgh in it. So you got the Crosby Malkin factor for a few years. You've got LA before that, Chicago, which has Taves and Kane. And then recently last year with Washington, you know, Ovechkin's quest for his first cup, the most prolific goal scorer of our generation. There's, there's these kind of headlines. And the only thing you really had for the Bruins and Blues is the fact that, you know, you have that iconic picture of Bobby Orr soaring through the air when he won it in 1970 for them. But other than that, it just, it just seems like hockey games. And it's, uh, you know, and I don't want to put anything down because the hockey, you've seen some great individual performances, but there just doesn't seem for me at least to be that I got to watch this hockey game. And, and who knows what that is? Maybe it's just here in Canada. We have a Raptors hangover right now, and we're only really caring about the fact that the Raptors are in the NBA finals. But I don't know. It's, it's missing something. And you have to wonder, Christian, if maybe it's just missing a little bit of the fact that the officiating has been a really big black mark on the entire playoffs. And people just are like, this isn't the two teams that necessarily should be there because of that. So I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Strategically, the Bruins went with 11 forwards and 7 defensemen last night with the uncertainty around how much Zdeno Chara could play. Didn't play a ton. Wasn't really a problem out there, but wasn't really noticeable either. Do you think that's a strategy that it would be smart for the Bruins to stick with Sunday night? You know, that's a tough one, and I really think that if I were them, I would I would not play seven defensemen. I look at Zidane Chara, and you know what? When you have that game at home, series tied to a piece in a game five, the emotional charge that it gave to have your captain out on the ice with a broken jaw, just the visual of it, you look at that and you think your team's going to get up for that, but they didn't win that game. And the fact is, is that Chara, as you mentioned, his 
time on ice was down. They had to take a forward out of the lineup, which is never a good idea because it forces you to start mixing your lines. And we saw that a little bit with Boston, but also he didn't play on the power play. And for me, Chara is such an important element on the power play. And so if he's not giving you that and he can't play his full minutes and you're having to tax Tory Krug more because, you know, and also Charlie McAvoy, Krug was over 25, McAvoy was over 24. I mean, you're taxing your other defensemen. And as we said, that Blues team over there, they're coming at you hard every single time you touch the puck. And that's a big, heavy team over there with a lot of skill. And I don't think it would be smart. And again, I'm not Bruce Cassidy and I don't claim to be an NHL coach, but we heard actually Patrick Sharp mention it on the NBC broadcast last night. He said, as a forward, he hated it when they went with 7D because it really mixed up everything up front. So I, I'm interested to see what the bees are going to do with that. But in my gut, I don't think you do 7D for game six when your season and the Stanley Cup is on the line. So when we talk again Monday, will it be over? <laughs> oh, if you're the Blues, you definitely want it to be over. You want to lock that up at home and get it done with. You know what? I have a feeling it just might be. I think that maybe we might get, you know, we just talked about how this final maybe doesn't have the, you know, the Cinderella story, like feeling, even though the blues haven't won a cup before, but I think they might be able to go home and you might be hearing a lot of Gloria oh after game six. Yeah. Sky's <laughs> already, Sky, well, Sky's already told me that the, the day after they win the cup, she's just going to play it the whole show. So Pray for my sanity. There you go. All right. We'll talk to you Monday, Leah. Thanks. All right. Sounds good. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell. Or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I dig you're out of luck. But Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?